is shorter than I am. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome up. You all had a good week. I, um, if I seem frantic and frazzled, it's because I am. I spent the week in Charlotte and got back after delays, a little after midnight on, well, Saturday morning. And uh, I leave again. My bags are packed to go out tonight. So, um, yeah, if I seem a little confused, it's... I am disoriented. And please pray for my wife as well, because we have, I'm leaving her with a one and three-year-old um, for the stretch. I'd also like to apologize for our late and bumpy start. I forgot the keys. Um, so that was on me. Um, but welcome. Hopefully, the rest of this will run smoother than it has. We have been for the past, I mean, really, it goes on for a very long time, but we've been very self-consciously for the past number of months looking at what it means to live as disciples, um, particularly what it, mean, as it means to live as disciples in Los Angeles. Uh, taking that as how we pursue following Jesus as apprentices to who he is, learning from him and being transformed to be like him. Part of being a disciple of someone, um, in addition to learning the things they do and how they think, is taking up their purposes as your own. Um, we look to Jesus and his story and seek to make that our story. We look to his purposes and what he is seeking to accomplish and seek that to make, to make those things our goals. And that's part of why we did the series we just exited. This is the start of a new series, but the one we just completed where we looked at the story from Genesis through to Revelation, trying to see something of the overarching story that's being told there of God's purposes that he's been working out, that he did at the beginning when he created man with an intention that in the end, his image bearers would fill the earth with his presence, bringing his order and reflecting his glory wherever they went. Um, that's obviously hit some bumpy spots in the road, but Jesus came back and died, was resurrected, and has empowered the church to go forward and do this. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent his spirit to empower us, to transform us, and to be with us as we do this. So we, as the church, have this purpose of God's to go forth and multiply bring about his order where we go, and reflect him for who he is. This is summed up in the Great Commission, which Jesus gives shortly before his ascension, when he says to the disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There we see it. Go forth, make disciples, multiply yourselves, teach them to observe everything that I've taught you, which is to bring about the kingdom reign as it multiplies through the, the body of the church, and he will be with us always. That's a pretty lofty purpose. Um, it's a magnificent mission statement. It's the sort of thing that's meant to stir your heart to action. But like a lot of mission statements, it really leaves a gigantic question of how. Um, it's like, go live for the glory of God. Okay, what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Am I doing that right now? 
If I go back to use our restroom, how exactly do I do that in that process? What does it mean to fulfill this purpose of seeing, <laughs> lock the door. What does it mean to go forth and fulfill this purpose that God has given us of multiplying and going forth? Um, what does it mean on a Sunday or uh, even more obscure on some Tuesday afternoon when your food coma is starting to set in and your grumpy boss or toddler or blending the two starts to push on you and what does it look like to fulfill our calling as the church on a day-to-day basis? This is something the church was faced with immediately. If we remember the story, Jesus sends, he tells the church to go wait. So they go to the upper room, Peter, the apostles, and 120 total people, and they wait. They have a clear, there's a clear thing they're supposed to do. Step one in this whole process is go wait for power. They know exactly what they're supposed to do, so they go and they sit in the room, and for seven days, they just wait. Then the spirit falls. They create a magnificent ruckus. A huge number of people come. Peter kind of shoots from the hip, preaches the first sermon, and on that day, 3,000 people are added to their number. So Peter and the apostles wake up in the morning knowing what they need to do, they need to go wait, and they're looking after a hundred other people, roughly. And they're going to bed that night, knowing they're going to need to get up the next morning, now looking after 3,100 people, and the clear directions are gone. They are not going back to waiting. They are not supposed to go back into that room and wait again. They're supposed to go forward and do this. And their previous large-scale leadership experience was basically fishing in a boat with their brother. So this is a massive immediate problem. It's a problem caused by massive explosion of numbers. I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it is a problem. And the question is, what do they do going forth to bring that? Fortunately, the scriptures record this. And I should have marked my text. Still very, very new at this. Uh, Acts 2. Continuing on in verse 41, as soon as I find it. So those who received his word, that's Peter's, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you get here a blueprint of sorts of their life together. They are first, the first thing it tells us is they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Um, The apostles' teaching at this time would have been taught by and large from the Old Testament. They would be using Old Testament scriptures, and their teachings are collected in what we consider the New Testament. Um, The majority of the New Testament is written either by an apostle or by a brother of Jesus or somebody who can directly be tied tied to one of those um, people. So we have 
what they're doing here is they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're, te- they're devoting themselves to what we have recorded in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are together. They're devoted to the fellowship. So they're devoted to this union of a body they have um, with one another. They were gathering together a lot. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and that probably includes what we would call communion, the meal that Jesus established, plus also just sharing meals day to day as they went through their week. They prayed, and they praised God, which is kind of taken as a given in church, and they took care of one another's needs. They they gave of what they had so that it would be distributed to those amongst their number who had need. And we find out later, uh, a few chapters later, that they were so successful in doing this that it can be recorded that there was no need among them. And they were given favor. What they were doing was attracting attention, and it was viewed favorably by people, and God was using that to add, add numbers to them. And we find out in the next chapter, it's also viewed very unfavorably by other people, and they get persecuted, and God also uses that to add numbers to them. So this is a fairly concise summary of what the church did to fulfill that mission. It is the how to that question, of uh, to the answer of what we are. Um, And the rest of the New Testament kind of expands on these things. This can't stand alone. It's a bit too thin. But really, there's nothing that I could think of that gets laid out through the rest of the New Testament that doesn't fall under these broad categories, especially if you consider how broad the idea of the apostles' teaching is. So we have here a nice, concise, bite-sized blueprint of what the church is meant to do. And if you think about this, it's what we do on a week-to-week basis. We come together. We have time of fellowship. We devote ourselves to the teaching. We do it here, hopefully. We also, that's what the kids' church is, what's going on in kids' church, We spend time in praise, as we did with Clancy singing. We pray together. We give. We take care of one another's needs, both individually where we communicate with one another and look after what the needs are, and also as we give into an offering so that when a need arises, the church can meet it. And we do it in a way that hopefully is attracting attention, that the kingdom would continue going forth and more people would be added to our numbers. This is something that flows from our identity. Somebody can't just find this text. We couldn't, strip, we couldn't rip this out of the Bible, drop it somewhere. A group of 30 people find it and start doing these things, and voila, you have a church. Voila. This is something that flows from the identity of who we are. It's not doing this that makes us the church. We are the church because Jesus has called us to himself and joined us together. That makes us the church. But this is what must flow from that. It's similar that you are not a Christian because of anything you did. You're a Christian because Jesus came and called you and made um, you his. He gave you the name, but there are changes that must flow from that. A life brought into Christ does not do anything to get there, but it is a life that is going to be transformed. Similarly, we are not the church because we do these things, but these things must flow from us. And all of this is grounded in Jesus. We don't do these things because they're just magnificent um, ways to build an organization. Um, The people who responded to this sermon, I always find it amusing that Peter's first sermon can basically be summed up in Jesus was um, Lord and you killed him. And somehow that resulted in 3,000 people being converted. Um, I mean, we have to give him some grace. He was kind of shooting from the hip there when he started preaching. Maybe with a little more prep time, he could have gotten it more subtly, but he went with that, and it worked. 
Um, but these people weren't just convicted and brought to this because they felt guilty that they killed Jesus or had some part in his death. They were convicted because they were presented a Jesus who sat on the throne. He was died, he was raised, and he was raised to the right hand of the Father, and his kingdom is going forth as he makes all the things that stand against him. His enemies all fall before him. So they're convicted that they see a king on a throne with his kingdom going forth. And they're saved into that kingdom and into those kingdom purposes. So as we, as the church, are brought up into that, we're brought into those purposes. And this is the concrete aspect of how we do it. And we need to view these things, this fellowship, this breaking of bread, this prayer, this praise. This is not talking about individually what we go do when we go home. We're not, I mean, I have a bunch of books, and I spend a lot of time reading, but this devotion to the apostles' teaching is not speaking simply of what I do by myself in my room. Similarly, prayer here is not talking simply about the fact that you spend time alone praying to God. These are the practices of a body. They are unified practices. This is us sitting together under the apostles' teaching. This is us telling one another the apostles' teaching. This is us coming together in prayer and raising our voices to God in a unified request and unified in coming in unison to praise who he is. It's the functions of a body. Becca read the scripture, which is a magnificent scripture about in from 1 Corinthians where the body, we are a body joined together. We are members of one body. There's a picture of Christ having one body, and each of us is some obscure, probably obscure, part of that body. And we move in union. The context of that passage is the gifts that are given. The Corinthians are basically a church that's clamoring for the showiest gifts they can find. They want to be the big person in whatever they do. They have their personal vision for what this life in Christ is going to be for them. And Paul comes to them and says, no, you are a body joined together. You work in unison. You honor one another. And as a body, you are serving a purpose. And that is the reality. If we are in Christ, we are joined together. You, do, you cannot be a Christian and be an atomized individual anymore. You can kick against that, but you are joined to not only to these people you like, but to the rest of the church. And that can be awkward at times. But we are joined to a body because the body is serving a purpose that we cannot accomplish individually. And we are a communally-minded church. I mean, to be honest, that is one of our strengths. Um, I am preaching to the choir, um, proverbially, um, in many ways here. We are not a church that sits here and is like, yay, individualism, boo, community. We are much the opposite. If there was a spectrum for like Western civilization with individualism over here and a strong community over here, we are definitely on the, other, the far side of the spectrum for community. But we still live in a very individualistic age. And we need to be careful because that will taint how we view community even as a communal set of people. The danger for us as a church is not fracturing and going about our own ways, thinking we can be detached from one another, I think we honestly know we need one another to get along in this life. The danger is that church becomes about supporting us, primarily about supporting us in our individual ventures. 
It becomes a hub from which we can succeed in what we feel the individual calling on our life is. And that's hard to pick up because of our context. I was going to make a note here about how we call it. Well, actually, I can say it here. We call this cold, and the entire Midwest laughs at us. Similarly, they complain about their house prices, and we get irritated. I'm sorry your house was, that you could afford was expensive. Um, but it's because of context. We have a feel. Uh, the world we live in shapes the way we do, so we have to be aware that we live in an individualistic age, which is going to consistently push against our commun- the communal focus we're called to have. To use an analogy from marriage, um, in an age where marriages are fracturing, where faithlessness is rampant, where spouses consistently undermine one another and try to get their piece of the pie and push against one another, a marriage that is simply faithful and where the spouses support each other as best they can in their individual pursuits will look like a fantastic marriage. And it is a good marriage, but it's something that still falls short of the biblical picture for what a marriage is supposed to be. We are called not to be two people. You're married. You're called not to be two people venturing forth for your separate goals. You are called to be joined as one body. You become one flesh, and there becomes a set of goals and things that the marriage itself is called to that the individual goals of the people are then subjected to. Marriage is more than just being a good team as you pursue your individual goals. And the truth is that means that you might actually achieve less of your individual goals in support of your marriage. You might have to turn down a job because it's the bad thing for your marriage. You might need to give up a hobby that you enjoy because it's a bad thing for your marriage. It is into this idea of a marriage being joined together, this calling of a marriage, that's the reason Paul can tell a husband that he is to lay himself down for his wife. He is telling the husband that the husband is to love the wife as himself to the degree that he is willing to lay down himself and to his own detriment for the service of his wife. And he can do it, and he can say that that person who's doing it, that man who lays his life down that way, is not actually really doing it to his own detriment because he's doing it for his own body. Because the husband and the wife are one. He who loves his wife loves himself. That is the calling of marriage. And you can see why that stands up here in that thing below where it is still a good marriage where two people are pursuing their individual goals still falls short of what the Bible's calling us to. And there's a similar parallel. I'm not saying it's the exact same to the church. We achieve something by standing together and supporting one another in our individual goals. But we are called to, while doing that, also look towards the shared goal that we have, the one, the mission that Jesus has called us to as a church. That's how bodies work. I just I reached down to lift up the sound gear, and as I always do, I lifted with my back, which means I'm going to hurt tomorrow. I didn't do it because my legs, in an attempt to not work, threw themselves out, and I lifted funny. I did it because I'm stupid. But our bodies does not our point being our the parts of our body are not pushing against each other to try and get each other into a bad situation so they can pursue their own goals. 
Neither does do I decide where I'm going to go by each of my body parts democratically deciding what we're going to do. First off, I would never get out of bed in the morning because there's like three parts of me that actually want to get up in the morning. <laughs> Secondly, I probably couldn't make it to the door. A body that moves that way is better than its individual parts. The truth is the church is not made up of the wisest, the smartest, the prettiest, the most wealthy, or the most successful people on earth. And I'm actually just speaking scripture there. It says that. <laughs> you guys are fantastic, but it's true. Um, but the church has gone forth because it pulls more, because the spirit of God moves behind it, but it also moves unified, because the body has a head. That's what the body serves. And a body that serves its head in a proper manner will outdo a body with more indi fantastic individual parts that are each doing their own thing. Like you could take a fantastically built person who's like six foot seven and has got gigantic biceps and really strong arms, can run like a four minute mile and really quick. And then you put a guy opposite him on a basketball court who's shorter, smaller, weaker, and slower. But if he knows how to move for basketball, he's going to school the bigger guy. This was my experience growing up. I am terrible at basketball. I was always in good shape, and I always lost badly because my body does not know how to move for basketball. It does not listen to my head when I tell it to go towards the hoop thingy. <laughs> Just to be clear, I'm from Indiana, so that's my, how intimate I was with basketball there, um, the hoop thingy. Yeah. I'm a terrible Hoosier. I left that state because it was too cold. Um, now, a few caveats about this, because we are called to serve the purposes of the church. When we are called in Christ, we are called to a greater purpose than ourselves. We are called to then subject our individual callings, our individual goals, our individual desires into this greater calling. So I need to say a few things about that. Because first off, this is not pointing to full-time ministry. Obviously. Who here is in full-time ministry? Raise your hand. No one. The only person in this church who's in full-time ministry isn't here today. <laughs> um, yeah. So it is not a call to that. What it is, it's a call that we are meant to read the various aspects and desires of our lives in subjection to the greater calling that Christ has placed upon them, the purpose he has put together that we can only achieve as part of his full body, the goal he has of multiplying his body, of bringing his order to this world, of ministering his spirit as he goes. Second, this only makes sense because we're speaking about Jesus. There is no human institution that can demand that of you. There's no human body that can say this is what you must do. They can say your individual desires should be subjected to this larger thing. I mean, they will try to, but you should resist at that point. But we're talking about our Savior and our God who has created us and then saved us out of the muck we got ourselves into freely and then has put us into a purpose. Jesus does not call us does not come, he did not come to individually save sinners. He came to individually save sinners to join them to a body that had a purpose. And if we just stop at that first thing, we fall well short of what we're meant to be here for. 
I mean, if it's just that first thing, save me and kill me, it's a lot easier. But the truth is we were saved to be joined together so that together we can accomplish something with Christ. And this is also not fundamentally about Mercy Town. I love you guys. I think this is a fantastic church, but we are not that special. There is no church out there that this stands in for. This is about the universal church. This is about the full body of Christ that covers both the earth as it is now and also through the ages. That is the church to which we're called to subject our individual callings, not Mercy Town. That said, it is very easy to hide behind something like that as an abstract. It's like saying, I love all of humanity and then being really grumpy with absolutely every person you meet. Do you really love humanity or do you like the concept of people? We need to be careful that we are not subjecting ourselves to the concept of the church in order to not be subjecting ourselves to anything. It's the reason why the, when, the command, when we're trying to show how we love, the instruction is go love that person. We do not love humanity in general. We don't love people in general. We don't even love the church in general. The church has a local manifestation of which Mercy Town is one of them. And if you are called to subject yourself to this larger thing, you are called to do that within the context of a church that's pursuing those purposes as well. For most of us, that is Mercy Town. And for those of you who aren't, find the place where it is. And fourthly, in saying this, and saying that we need to lay down, to some extent, our own pursuits for the pursuit of the body, the truth is we still benefit. That's why this is the way God has oriented the world. He has, through his marvelous wisdom, created a world and an order such that we, when we follow him to our own apparent detriment, we still benefit. That's why he can create a marriage where a husband can lay himself down for his wife and the husband still benefits. And I will tell you that is true even if the marriage falls apart. You will still be transformed because of how you treat your wife. There's a fantastic passage um, that I find extremely humbling in the 10th chapter of Mark. It's right after the section on the rich young ruler where a very wealthy guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you. And what do I need to do? And actually, I think it's to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, Jesus is off the laws. The guy says, I've done it. And Jesus goes, okay, one more thing you need to do. Sell all that you have and follow me. And the guy goes away upset because he had a lot. And the people are shocked because a rich person has just gone off. And Jesus says, it's hard for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. And Peter, charming, impetuous Peter, sees his opening and decides he's going to position himself here. And he starts to brag about how much he's given up. This text literally reads, Peter began to say, look how much we've given up. And Jesus cuts him off. And what he says is no one has given up in this, who has given up in this life, it's like fathers, mothers, fields, etc., will not in this life get back fathers, mothers, fields, etc. 
and persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. The point is, as we give up things here, we will be blessed there. Not just give them up in general, but give them up in the calling and purposes of God. We will find blessings in this life, and in the age to come, we will find many, many, many more. This is a concept that has been tainted badly by a health and wealth gospel. A prosperity gospel which simply says, okay, if I give my $10,000 here, I'll get $20,000 back later from God. That's not what God's saying here. That's a Ponzi scheme. What it's saying here is you, give, you might give something here and you might get something completely different back here, but in the end, your ledger will still be in the positive relationship to God. He will continue to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing on us. So as we live and the things we lay down because of the calling that's upon us, we still come out and gain. So that's where we are with those caveats in place. We have been called by Christ. As Christians, he has come and called us to him by grace. And he has done that individually to join us into a body. And this is a body we will be with forever. It is the bride of Christ who will meet him at the end of times. And you and you and you are not the brides of Christ. There is a bride of Christ and it's the church, which is all of us together. We have been called in the meantime to a purpose that we share. And we've been called to view our lives and the individual goals in subjection to the larger purpose of that body, which is the body of Christ following Christ after Christ the head. So this is actually the start of a series. We are going to look over the next six, I think, weeks at the different aspects of this section on how to be the church. And what I want us to do as we go through this is to look at them not in how does this benefit my individual walk with Christ. What we need to look at these at is how does this benefit his body as it seeks to serve his purposes. And again, I promise you, your individual walk will be benefited. But the thing we need that needs to drive us forward as we look at this series on living as a community, living as the church, is how does Christ use these things to build up his body? Because the goal is that through the intentional execution of these various things, Christ, through his spirit, will work to build us up as a church to fulfill the purposes he's called us to. that each of us would be individually transformed and that collectively would be joined together for a purpose. Because there's a joy there. I mean, I've been parts of sports teams. I've been parts of other small entities that had a common purpose. And there's times when you do that where you set aside something that you wanted to do because it serves this individual purpose and you find the joy of having that common purpose. We need to keep before us the common purpose that we have in Christ. We are joined as a fellowship. Fellowships have a vision for where they're going. They have a common picture they're looking towards, a common goal. We are not just people who like each other, although I like all of you. And as I said, we 
do these things on a Sunday, but we are also limited in what we can do on a Sunday. We're limited by the time frame. It's only a couple hours. It's less when I forget the keys. We're limited by the setup. This is not conducive to everybody taking part. Um, we're also limited. I had another thing we're limited in. I forgot it now. Generally speaking, we are limited by this general setup we have here on Sunday. And this will be more true as we grow, God willing. So we are in an attempt to bring about a second, a way of living as the church. We're going to reinstitute the home groups going forward. That will kick off next week. Next week. And just because the word next confuses everybody, my wife and I use next in two completely different ways, which leads to all sorts of messes. The week of the 14th, we're doing the home groups. Today's the 7th, right? Somebody? There we go. Aaron, Dad. Week of the 14th, we're going to do home groups. So they will start then. I will go into some practicals of what we're going to do in just a second. But first, I want to say one thing to those of us who have been around for a long time, which oddly is limited in this service. We have done home groups before in this church. And they were at turns magnificent and at turns they meandered, I guess, um, for lack of a better term. And they kind of fizzled out at the end. And we are aware of that. And we want to keep them focused with a purpose and a drive, a, a drive to them. We are aware that everyone in this church is busy. And we don't want to waste a bunch of time of people. So we have a particular thing that we're going to try and drive this to. So to those of you who have done the home groups before and are in some different spot or have been through the Mercytown home groups before and you're going, oh, home groups again. If there's any cynicism, I would just ask, please take that to God. Ask him to try and help you with that. And to as much as you can, come to them with fresh eyes looking for something new. These home groups are not meant to be, I mean, just to be clear, it's one of those things you first learn when you become a Christian at age 20-something is that the church is not actually the building. It's the group of people. And the other thing that you start to break is that church is also not the gathering of the people on Sundays. The home groups are not meant to be some ancillary support to the main thing. They are us being the church in a different setting doing all the things that we've talked about here that the church does. So the intention for this series is that what we're going to do is as we go through these items, well, first let me back up and we go through the practicals because that's going to make no sense if I don't do that first. The home groups, there will be two starting the week of the 14th. One will be led by the Wazalewskis. Yep. <laughs> like... Yeah, Terry said that. Yeah, okay. Terry said he talked to him, so that was going to be awkward just a second. The other will be led by the Fouchés. We are working out times. We are working out locations. We will have an answer to that this week because we have to. Um, they are going to meet weekly, which is a massive change from how we did them previously, where we met monthly. There's two main reasons for that. One is because it's hard to build a cadence of relationship when you meet once a month every single time you're starting over. 
And that's not to say that we don't know each other, but as new people get added and actually just in the way we live our lives, especially as things like after parties and other stuff has diminished with us moving to the evenings, this is to give a weekly time where we can connect on a smaller scale. The other reason is, as hard as it is to connect relationally monthly, when you travel for business on one of them and then your kid gets sick on the other, you go three months without meeting at our old home group setting. You meet in January and then you meet again in April. If you, sick, if you had traveled for work once and your kid got sick once, or you got sick, I don't know why I'm blaming everything on my children. So if we meet on a weekly scale, if you miss one, you're only two weeks apart. So I know it sounds like it's a massive thing, but it also is to put less pressure on every individual meeting that they're trying to be everything each time, that they simply meet on a regular weekly cadence. But because we're aware of how busy people are, and also because we want to do other things as a church, we're going to move on a four-month cycle. That's going to be three months on, one month off. For those of you who work in a quarter system, it's 13 weeks on, and then four to five weeks off each time. The intention of that four to five weeks off is to help prevent burnout amongst the leaders, amongst all of us for doing it, and also to give time where we can run like a special course. If we wanted to do emotionally healthy spirituality again, or if we wanted to run a special training on something, we would try and run it during that time so that we're not trying to demand a second thing of everybody in the middle of a week. And just to make things really confusing, now my wife's shaking her head. No, just just stick with me one more second. Within the 13 weeks, we're going to take two of those off as well. If you follow patterns like me, you're going, this is exciting, something to figure out. For the rest of you, you'll get a written schedule. But the reason for those two weeks off of the 13 is not so that we can have a every five-week Netflix catch-up because you've been busy, but it's so that you can drive relationships in a different way. So you can have somebody in your home group into your house and get to know them a little better, or you can meet with somebody from a different home group or somebody new to the church or reach outside the community and just have somebody in that time. We'd still want people to use that for a relational time. So again, there will, this will be written down as a schedule, but it is going to be a four-month cycle meeting weekly for three of those months, basically. Are there any questions about that before I get into the tail end of this? Yeah. It'll be, yeah, it's going to be, we're not going to try and direct people into one. I would say if one's closer to you, go for that. But since we're going to be the, the Fouchés and the uh, Wazlewskis, they're currently, you can think they'll rocks to each other. Um, that's really, so it's probably going to be more schedule-based. Um, yeah, the, the encouragement is to pick one and stick with it as much as possible. Because we're looking for relationships. These are not... This is something else that's changed. Historically, we have treated the home groups very much as the, entry, the more seeker-sensitive entry point into our church. And we are actually going the opposite direction with that this time. We want This will actually be the spot where a new person would possibly feel a little more out of sorts. Not because we want people to feel out of sorts, but because we actually want to drive a familiarity and a cadence and an intimacy in these groups that's hard if people are bouncing around. So that would be why we want to do that. This is meant to be the more, I guess, seeker-sensitive, though we are not a seeker-sensitive church. If we do, we do it poorly. Um, yeah, so that's it. Basically, you choose. Once we get the schedules and locations out, which, again, should be out this week. Any other questions? All right. So the way this... Aaron. Yes. 
And that's a fantastic segue into my next point. Um, so does anybody have a qu other question other than that one, or I can move, I'll move on? No? All right. So what we can do in the church, and this is why we're doing this series right now the way we're doing it. We're going to move through each of the items at the tail end of Acts. We will cover one to two items a week, depending upon the time schedule. And the goal is, so we're, like we'll cover fellowship, the breaking of bread or fellowship the first week. And the goal is then at the home group that week, that's the thing we'll do. So the first week, which I think is going to be basically fellowship and breaking of bread, the home group will basically be sharing a meal and hanging out. Then the second week, let's say we do prayer, the goal is that we will go, we will share the meal, and then we'll pray together. And then we add on praise. So we share a meal, we pray together, and then we praise God either through music, if you've got the right people there, or if not, simply just standing together and shouting to God who he is. And so on. And the goal is that by the end of the series, as we basically slowly tack on each item, we end up with a home group where we get together, we share a meal. We then have a time of small, a short time, 15, 20 minutes of applied discussional teaching. We spend time praying for one another and just praying in general. We minister to one another's needs and we praise God. I think I covered all those aspects. So that's it. It's Again, it's the same things we're doing here. This is simply the church being the church. It's just being the church in a different spot. And the truth is, that's the broad goal. We aim to do all of those things each week, but the leaders will have discretion based on what's going on that week in the world, what's going on in people's lives, to potentially sit on one or two of the items if needed. If it's a one of those weeks where you get there and half of the home group is just at the point of melting down, because life has reached that spot, you might spend, have a meal, and then spend the time praying for one another and just jettison the rest of it. But the overarching goal is that a general framework is it'll be a shared meal, which is partially also to help those of us who work late to be able to just go to a place where there's a meal. So we can spend time having fellowship over shared food and get just enjoy each other's company before we kind of dig into... A short teaching that will, generally speaking, be somewhat connected to what we're going through as a church in general. Um, some time of prayer, some time of praise, and then looking after each other's needs and potentially praying for one another. That all makes sense? Okay. Thank you for the thumbs up, John. Um, yeah, this is... I mean, we've been talking about launching home groups for a long time. We want, we want to do this right. We want to be attentive to where people are. We want to pay attention to what the time constraints of people are. We don't, these are not going to be things that run into midnight. We're going to try and keep this in hours that work for people. But we feel like this is something that can really have a powerful impact on us as a body. Um, we have a grand calling in Christ. We have been rescued from darkness and brought into light. The God of creation has looked upon us and said he knows our name. And he has joined us into his body. He has a purpose for this world that he has had since the beginning. And he looks at us, which is ridiculous when you consider what we are. And he says, I will fulfill this through that group of people.
I'm excited to be a part of this church. I'm excited to be a part of the church of God and what he's doing. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next season as we venture forward on this. Thank you.